Hello, Darby. Don't usually say here, hello, me, Joe. I remember I heard that for the first time. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, brilliant. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for the welcome. I'm just going to adjust this a little bit because I'm a bit taller. And, I, um, and if I bring my computer up to me, that means that I don't need to wear my glasses too much. Um, there we go. Ooh. It's a bit precarious. Um, it's great to be here. It's been uh, really great to chat, albeit briefly, with uh, Gary this morning. You have a great pastor here, and uh, I hope you appreciate him lots. Um, what, a, what a lovely place this is, by the way. What a beautiful building. You know, it, re- it really is. I mean, the ch- if the church is as nice as the building, this is, you've got a lot going for you, you know. <laughs> You probably noticed by my accent that I'm, although I work in London, I'm not from London. Uh, I'm from a little place in Liverpool called Bootle, which is, it is like it sounds. Uh, uh, I was born there, grew up there, I've got family there at the moment, and I'm from a a sort of, uh, a completely non-Christian background, a large family in Bootle. I went to St. George of England School for Young Burglars in Bootle, <laughs> uh, and, and where I acquired what we call alternative life skills, uh, <laughs> we'll put it like that. And then at the age of, um, I was married, I had a couple of kids, and at the age of 26, I was working in Germany. I was a builder, like my father, and uh, you know, like Alvida's Aim Prep, does anybody remember that? Uh, living in huts and stuff, crazy. Um, I'd come to faith. God just apprehended me and uh, I'd come back and went to a little uh, Baptist church in the middle of these council estates in North Liverpool and the Lord spoke to me. The God of heaven just grabbed me and uh, I've been trying to follow him ever since Um, and he took me on this crazy journey into education. I left school without any qualifications at all and he he took me through successive qualifications to the point where within nine years of being saved, I was lecturing in political philosophy at Lancaster University. <laughs> He's got a sense of humour, God, hasn't he? He really, I, I think he thought with me, I think he thought, we've got a thick one here. We really need to work on this one. So that, that's my background. I was, I was just saying to Gary, I think the last time I was in Derby was for a, a, an Everton match against Derby County. I, tried, I know, it's sad, isn't it? But... Uh, I think we lost actually, so uh, nothing changes there. Um, but it's great to be here again. Uh, I live in Bedford, uh, well near Bedford, in a little village. Uh, my, with my wife Valeria, she's a Brazilian American. She just flew back to the US yesterday because she's doing a bit of work over there. So it's much quieter in the village now, <laughs> um, as you can imagine. Um, and I work now. I I've worked for since doing the academic work. I moved to work. Bible Society in Parliament for 10 years doing uh, what they call Bible advocacy, trying to glue the uh, Christian community together there, the MPs, the peers, uh, the policy community, lots of Christians in and out of Parliament today even, and government buildings, and um, also uh, just trying to help Christian politicians to articulate a biblical worldview in how they process things. Uh, and that's, you can, as you can see, uh, variable in its, um, in its outcomes, to say the least. Really enjoyed that work, travelled a lot with that, talked all over the world, in the EU, in the African Union, 
the Bible study in the White House, which was quite fascinating. Um, and I've done all sorts of stuff like that. But politics is my focus. My academic background is, you know, I say to people, I'm not a theologian. Uh, my background is political philosophy, so lots of isms today. I'll just put that out there. There you go. You're going to get a lot of isms. Um, but they're important. Ideas have consequences, and I want to talk through some of the ideas in our society today. Um, the work at the Alliance now, um, I, I'm still connected into Parliament a lot because the advocacy work, the Alliance has existed for 172 years to network evangelical Christians. It's a sort of broad spectrum from charismatic, Pentecostal, reformed, conservative, all orthodox and historic, uh, historically theologically orthodox in, in the worldview, growing, and I'll come back to that, uh, in a couple of points, uh, church is growing in the UK rather fast. We have growth problems, which is weird. Uh, praise the Lord. And uh, the work of the Alliance, as you can imagine, uh, Evangelical Alliance, it's about the gospel. It's about how can we work together in unity to reach people with the evangel. But if you, are, if you have unity in, in a society, then you should have a voice. And the advocacy work is about representing the voice of evangelical Christians in society, in politics, in the media, uh, and also enhancing the voice, helping Christians everywhere to have voice, be that in the workplace, in the school, in the university, you name it, in the community. Uh, and that work goes on and on and on. And we've got an illustrious history of this, you know, right from the outset, because evangelicalism is about the proclamation of the gospel, there's a strong connection with religious freedom, right from the very outset, freedom of speech, and also transforming society. And I'll refer to some of our illustrious history as we go along, which the Methodist Church is centrally uh, involved in. Uh, praise God. Okay. Um, and just to say, we, uh, part of the work that I do at the moment, I oversee a team of public policy officers in the various parliaments and assemblies of the UK that deal with policy issues that are arising across a range, very broad range of issues. And I'll talk a little bit about them uh, as we go along. And I also oversee some of our commissions um, uh, within the Alliance. So we have a, an education commission that brings together people with a focus on that. We have an education policy officer as well. Um, we have a religious liberty commission that brings together Open Doors, Release International and um, Christian Solidarity Worldwide. And that's to look at issues facing the persecuted church. And we have the, um, the Theological Advisory Group, TAG, which is basically like the Jedi Council of uh, Evangelical Theologians. You know, imagine a room with people in, who've got five brains in one head uh, all around the table. It's, yeah, it's fascinating conversation. I just sit there and stroke my chin as if I know what they're talking about. And it just goes around this conversation. Brilliant. But it's important because... What we say and, and how we say it and how we engage in public life needs to be anchored firmly in the Bible. Evangelicalism, if it's anything, it's, uh, it's a phenomenon that has a love of the Bible and the evangel, the heart permission that comes out of that. Um, you can describe evangelicalism in all sorts of different ways, but that for me is basically what it's about. Okay. What I want to do today, and me and Gary have talked a little bit about this, is um, look at what's happening in our culture. 
in our society, um, what's happening around us, uh, how this impacts and affects uh, Christians, and then this afternoon look at some possible responses and and how we can respond in an immediate way and in a more long-term strategic way in the culture as well and and contextualise this. And I just want to say well done to Gary for putting this on and for, you know, putting a Saturday on where we're thinking about the world around us and how our faith engages with that and what the challenges and the pressure points might be in in all of this. Uh, I was up in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago with with a large black majority church, RCCG, amazing place and they're doing exactly the same thing and it just struck me that if every church in the country just done one or two weekends a year thinking about how they shape their culture and society then things would get a lot better I think so so well done for that I think yeah okay um, just to say also as well there's, there's a few football analogies that will come through as well as we roll along I can't help it there we go uh, I also play football for the parliamentary team, which is five aside and eleven aside. You get to kick Ian Duncan Smith. Right? <laughs> the problem is, though, he kicks you back. There we go. It's great fun. Uh, and I'll repeat some of the talk. I'm not sure how many people were there when I spoke at the Methodist National Conference, uh, Methodist Evangelical uh, meeting that was uh, that was at the conference. Some of the points. Uh, related to some of the sexuality issues and marriage and identity and stuff. I'll revisit some of them as I go along as well. Okay, you good? And this is my slow Liverpool voice, by the way. I can can talk in a stream of consciousness without any connection between any other words. My family think I speak like Radio 4. They think this is the Queen's English, so there we go. Okay. Um, A couple of qualifications just from the outset here. Um, Culture. Um, We're talking about society, the people around us, the lives and values and views and the swirl of it all around us. But I often use the word culture rather than society. By culture, what I mean is um, what is ordinary, what people take for granted before they even get out of bed in the morning. The things they assume are set and always have been and always will be, but never are set and always constantly changing and moving. So when I, when I use the word culture, I mean, it, I mean that. I don't mean uh, the opera or drinking a cup of tea with your finger like this. That's a different kind of view of culture. Okay. Um, big picture. Where are we? or more accurately, to quote the question that was posed often by the missiologist Leslie Newbegin, what time is it? That's a a better way to frame things. What time is it? By which he meant, where are we in God's story, in his story? Because his story is history. Where are we? It's a chronology rather than a location. Okay. And I I like what the theologian Tom Wright uh, his response to this, question, to this question is, he says, we know we're in a five-act play and we know we're in the fifth act. Right? We know we're in a five-act play and we know we're in a five-act. Uh, by, by which he means creation, fall, Israel, Jesus and the church, the consummation of all things, everything coming together with the return of Christ. We know that we're in that fifth act now. Um, And what we have ahead is we have the coming kingdom and the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is where 
the people who love the Lord, who are born again. This is, this is our destination. This is our terminus. The timeline is set the same for all of us, but God's people all over the world are experiencing and responding to different things in different ways. That's just natural, isn't it? Um, it's like the churches in Revelation. the seven churches at the beginning. They're all dealing with different stuff in different ways. Um, some good, some not so good, but there it is. And across the world, the cultural weather patterns uh, affecting uh, Christians and this uh, coming unstoppable kingdom that we're seeing, in, whether it's north, east, south, west, it's all different. The challenges, so some might be material poverty, lots of the world it is. To others, it might be religious oppression. To others, it might be other cultural distractions, shall we, shall we say, um, from what the gospel's about. So, what about us here in the West? What are we seeing? What are we dealing with? Um, and just one more quick qualification here. I've done a talk be- before Christmas to some churches in Bedford, and I qualified it with this three point um, frame, and I think it's brilliant. And I want to do it again here. And the three-point frame is this. Number one, things are probably far worse than you think they are. Okay? Far worse. Okay? Number two, things are probably going to get a whole lot worse before they get any better. And number three, things are never as bad as they seem with Jesus. So, you know, the enemy goes around like a roaring lion trying to intimidate the people of God with how bad things are. And let me tell you, I'm not going to sugarcoat. Things are going to get tough. If you're a Bible-believing Christian with a, 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 that adheres to the, hus- the historic tenets of the Christian faith, you're not going to have a cakewalk in the next few years. But I also believe that beyond that, for the first time in a long time, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is a better day that can be discerned ahead, which I'm excited by. I could be wrong, you know, but that's what I think. Okay. So, what's happening in the Western world? Well, here's a scripture that I've been speaking from for the last eight or nine years now that describes what I think was experiencing as a kind of vast spiritual earthquake in the Western world. The Western world is where we live, our culture. Everything is shaking. It's Hebrews 12. And it says this. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And, you know, to quote Jerry Lee Lewis, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. Um, I won't sing that. Um, and it's not just Christians who are noticing it. Which is, and this is important uh, at this moment in time. I think for the last 50, 80 years, Christians have been increasingly uh, concerned about what's happened culturally and societally. But it's not just Christians now. I would even go as far as to say it is the vast majority of people are now concerned about what's happening. And that's a significant factor, a significant change. I uh, went to speak at Moreland's College last year, 
Um, and I stayed in a little B&B the night before. Uh, it's on the south coast. And uh, I was sitting talking in the morning with the, um, the owner of the B&B, talking about Everton Football Club, as you do, and while I was having breakfast. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, certainly. And he didn't know I was a Christian. He said, do you think the world's gone mad? <laughs> I said, you know what? I think it has. And then I started talking to him about Christianity and our culture and who Jesus is and hope. And, and we were in this great conversation. So, and then off I went to the college, done my little thing. And I jumped in a taxi that was ordered for me to get back to the station. I hadn't said anything to the taxi driver. As he pulls up at the lights, he turns to me and says, Do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, No, that's fine. He said, Do you think the world's gone mad? <laughs> and we were back into the conversation again. And I think it was just God's way of showing me that people are disturbed. I mean, genuinely disturbed by what, what they see on the TV screens and what they see on the street, in life, in, conversa- in relationships. In, in Parliament, in politics, in the media, it's disturbing people. There's a shaking going on, and uh, it's disturbing people. And I think it's, this shaking is basically happening because our culture, the Western culture, has been built for over one and a half thousand years on a foundation, a Judeo-Christian foundation of morality, of, uh, values, and sort of how we see other people, what we, what we understand, what it means to be human. It's been built on this, and then you have justice and institutions and everything built on all of that stuff. And it's, it, to use that building metaphor, it's like we've dug up the foundations over the last 100, 100 150 years, and now we're all really surprised that the walls are falling down around us. And that's kind of where I see the culture as at this moment. We've had lots in the news over the last six months with, about climate change, the issue of climate change and the debates on both sides of that. But what's happening in the West has been described by the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who's an incredible thinker. Uh, and I pray that he'll get saved one day because he's, he's actually better than a lot of the bishops in terms of the way he defends <laughs> Christianity. But he's described what's happening in the West as... Uh, cultural climate change cultural climate change I think it's a brilliant phrase by which he means the weather patterns of our lives that we've become accustomed to have shifted dramatically changed the weather that we experience in our lives has dramatically changed it's even stormy Os Guinness uh, the theologian he describes our culture today as being a cut flower culture it's like, use that flowers on the church somewhere. It's, used, it's like flowers in a vase. They look beautiful, but they're actually divorced from their roots. They've been cut, they're on display, and they're in a process, actually, of atrophy, of death. They're wilting away. And I'm actually part of a European Evangelical Alliance network that's looking at European culture that's called The Petals Are Falling. The Petals Are Falling. And that, our culture is a cut flower culture. Tim Keller, if you want a, if you want a more uh, nuanced and brilliant analysis of where we are in our culture, please do look at Google Tim Keller's address to the National Prayer Breakfast in 2018. It's one of the best talks I've ever heard to all, 
the hundreds of MPs sitting there in the, in the great hall, and he talked about how the gifts of Christianity and the salts of Christianity that we all benefit from in our culture and how we're losing it in our culture cannot stay the same without it. But we still, what he, what he focused on was how our MPs still use the language of, of the Christian gift. We talk about equality and fairness and justice and freedom and things like that. But we don't have, we can't back it up. We have nothing to support that. And what he, the, the phrase he kept repeating in this talk was, we lack the resources for our high ideals. We lack the resources for our high ideals. They are noble, worthy, high ideals. But so what? Why should we do this? How should we do this? We, don't, we can't justify these things anymore. Because there's an atheistic mindset in Parliament. So, is this okay? We're, we're good? Okay. Uh, what's the response of the church to this? We'll look at that later this afternoon, but if you believe that the health of the church determines the health of the culture, the nation, then the question should be, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? And you can go into all sorts of archaeology, historical archaeology, but I think this is a, a, a good uh, way to look at it. This is a statement, a prophetic statement, that William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, made at the beginning of the last century which is the secular century, the great secular experiment. Okay. He said, I consider the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, that's interesting, isn't it? And heaven without hell. What a prophetic statement. And you've got to understand that he said this as we went, the interwar years of the, of the last century, we had uh, the social gospel and liberal theology, which decimated the church in the West, and decimated the influence of the church in the West as well. Uh, but it had all sorts of other knock-on effects as well. But he said it in that, in that context. And that it was a context shaped by the three W's. The three W's. So, Booth's, all the amazing work of uh, William and Catherine Booth happened on the back of the three W's. The Whitfield revivals, the Wesleyan revivals, you lot, um, and William Wilberforce's embedding of all that good God stuff into our society. He embedded it. The problem we have today is people, they want the good stuff, but they don't want the God stuff. They want the, the fruits, but they don't want the roots. So the three W's built this sort of head of steam where our society benefited from the immense work. And we've got some research that suggests that between 1850 and 1900, um, over 70% of all welfare provision, and that's education and hospital care and everything else, was delivered not by Christians, but by evangelical Christians. 70%. If that was even half correct, and we think it is correct, that means that we built the modern state. Everything, everything was built by evangelicals. All these statues and plaques in our town centres, nobody knows who these people are. They're evangelicals. 
who transformed society and built institutions and hospitals and schools and roads and sewerage systems and you name it. Electricity. There's a place in London, a friend of mine took me to in Hoxton, the first electricity station in London. And it's got a big scripture across the front of it. It was built by this brethren organisation who wanted to bring electricity to the poor in London. It's incredible, isn't it? Anyway, there we go. I love this stuff. What's happened? Well, it's a good image. This bus, the 38 bus, apparently, um, runs from Clapham to Bloomsbury across London. Good visual aid, this. The Clapham sect, William Wilberforce, Macaulay, Equiano, Hannah Moore, who built all these institutions and we live off all their wonderful benefits today, all of us. They, what they built was undermined, intentionally undermined, displaced and superseded by another group uh, generations later called the Bloomsbury Group. Now you've heard of writers like uh, Virginia Woolf, Ian Forster, economists like John Maynard Keynes, uh, Lytton Strachey, all these people, the Webbs, they were all part of this group of intellectuals, public leaders, who completely, intentionally dismantled what the first group had built. They knew what they were doing, they went for it, and they were very successful. And we live in the dwindling benefits of the first group and the utter wreckage of the second group. These were the architects of what later became known as the sexual revolution. It, it, this is where it came from. And actually, if you trace them right back, they were actually a cult. They were actually part of a, a kind of religious cult in Oxford, if you, if you run it right back, particularly with Virginia Woolf. So, what does this mean for us, for evangelical Christians? Um, it means quite a lot, actually, because although our liberal democracy, our society, the idea of liberalism, which is the dominant way we live together, the dominant political philosophy of our age, although that came from evangelical, non-conformist campaigns, um, basically to give everybody equality before the law. It's, you know, liberalism is un undoubtedly an evangelical gift to the world, by the way. Uh, because of this, because we've travelled from Clapham to Bloomsbury, we are now, we're now at a point where liberalism is distinctly illiberal. Do you remember what happened to Tim Farron when he was the leader of the uh, Liberal Democrats? Tim's a good friend of mine. I was with Tim in Parliament this week and I'm on his uh, Faith in Public uh, you should get him in to speak. He's a, good, he's a, he's a great speaker, Tim. Uh, better than me. Um, but look what happened to him. You've got an evangelical Christian um, who is a classic liberal in the sense that he believes other people are entitled to their views and values uh, and a, a genuine diversity of views. But he was hounded out of office because, not because of how he voted or even because of what he said, but because of what he thinks. Now, just, just, just think about that, right? That is, a, that is a new phenomenon in our culture. We've not had that here before. Because of what you think. Well, you could say we had it in the sort of Cromwellian era with the Reformation and kind of belief and, and, and the wars of religion, maybe, what you believe. But 
what you think about something. And look, I don't know if you followed the story in the election with it, Rob Flello in Stoke. Who, Rob, another friend of mine, he's a charismatic Catholic Christian, was a Labour MP for many years, great MP, lost his seat because Labour didn't back him, and was coming in as a Liberal Democrat, standing as a Liberal Democrat. Just before he was due to run his campaign, after they confirmed him as the candidate, they withdrew because of his views on marriage, on abortion, on euthanasia. What, what, do you, what would you expect a Catholic to believe? What would you expect a Muslim to believe? A Jewish person, a Hindu? Uh, what would you expect? What would you expect a Conservative to believe? Or a Socialist? Or a and this is where we are now. We're in the realm of thought police, and I think there's a legal case going forward on that. How do we explain this totalitarian term? Okay, getting into some isms now. This is an interesting book by a Jewish uh, uh, writer called, journalist called Jonah Goldberg. Jewish name, that one, isn't it? Um, And he makes the point that um, secularism doesn't create fascism. It doesn't. It is fascism. It always has been. It always will be. It can't not be anything else. And he makes the point elaborately and quite humorously as well uh, through a series of stories, one of which is a little-known fact that Benito Mussolini, this great fascist dictator, did you know that he was the head of the Italian Communist Party for 16, 17 years? You think, hang on. How can he be the head of the Italian Communist Party and then become a fascist dictator? It's the same thing. He just shifted within the spectrum of secularism. It's the same thing. Your history books won't tell you this. It's the same thing. It's also why Germany and Russia were collaborating for a long time before they tried to destroy each other. Secularism is fascism, and it's one of the reasons we produced our Speak Up resource, and I've got some resources that we'll hand out um, this afternoon, just to give clarity about the need to speak up in public life. Secularism, I'm going to talk about it, secularism is the idea that um, (laughs) Christianity, faith, has no role or should not have any influence in public life, that it should be a private affair, uh, restricted to people who, weird people, who meet at weekends, uh, in gothic refrigerators, <laughs> average, average age deceased. That, 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 that kind of Christianity is okay with secularists, but we shouldn't have any influence on life around us, on how we relate to each other, on our value systems. And secularism is sustained by two powerful myths or lies. The first myth is the myth of progress. This is the idea that Today is better than ju- yesterday, just because it's today. You, you, you these t- how can this happen in our day and age? Well, why wouldn't it happen in our day and age? This is the idea that we are inevitably and inexorably moving onwards and upwards to a city on a hill, a utopia. Does that sound familiar? It's, a, it's an atheist copy of the teleology of the kingdom of God. This idea has killed and immiserated more people in human history than any other idea. I was at the Holocaust Memorial Service in uh, Methodist Central Hall last week, 
Auschwitz-Birkenau is a memorial to progressivism. That's what pro... If you want to, if you want to see the most progressive place in the world, where the, the World Pro... Uh, Progressive Congress was held until recently? North Korea. That's, pro, that's human progress for you. Because, you know, the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. Progressivism. And the second myth is the myth of neutrality. Secular neutrality. The idea that there's some kind of secular neutral space in the middle of society where everything's kind of suspended animation of values Whereas religious people, well, we just bring our biases and our opinions into it. There's only one problem with this. It's rubbish. Right? <laughs> it takes you about a millisecond to think through the fact that everybody brings values and views with them. Everybody into public. That's what public life is. That favour some groups and values and disfavour other groups and values. That's life. That's what democracy is. And that's why secularism is a clear, present danger, an existential threat to democracy. An existential threat. The more secular our society will be, the less democratic it will be. Fact. And history books will tell you that as well. Okay. So these two myths sustain things. What they also show today as well, the way secularism, this idea of atheism being normative and everything, uh, it's now intimately connected to and delivered in public life via sexualism. Secularism is delivered overwhelmingly via sexualism. And sexualism is the idea that sexual gratification or identity related to sex is of the paramount importance and should not be challenged or even questioned again really significant secular uh, way of thinking about things. And the secular media is obsessed by what uh, Christians think about sex. And they say Christians are obsessed with sex. We didn't redefine marriage. Okay? You know, it, it's, we get, you wouldn't believe the amount of inquiries we get from the media into the evangelical lines where they want us to comment on this, that and the other overwhelmingly loads of sex stuff you know and I, you know I want to talk about poverty I want to talk about welfare reform uh, consumer society employment employment is a massive issue I mean <laughs> but, and we have to turn these things down because if we, if we just keep replying to them we end up characterised as the sex people you know which we're not you know and the sec this secular obsession is strategic Last year I'd done a series of BBC regional programmes uh, commenting on a National Secular Society report which was calling for the public benefit basis for charitable status of, re of religious groups to be removed because our views, particularly around sexuality issues, were harmful. You'll, you'll hear this word a little bit more. In Liverpool we say harm, but I'll, I'll tell you that. Harmful to society generally and to children specifically. Harm. We call this expansive notions of harm. And it's, it's in the language now. It's in the language. What this culture shift means 
significantly is that what we once called gay rights, and it's now an LGBTQIA+, non-binary, open-ended spectrum kind of alphabet soup at this moment in time. Uh, where, is that, where is gay rights, whatever we want to call it? It might have been annoying to people who adhere to a Christian morality or even a working-class morality or whatever morality. It is now fundamentally, diametrically, ideologically and strategically challenging it at every level. That's what's happening. Um, so, the ideology it challenges our freedoms to proclaim the gospel, to live out the gospel, to uh, transmit the truths of the gospel to the next generation. I'll, and I'll come on to some of the challenges we've got in uh, education policy in a minute. Uh, and only this week you've seen the, the, the deplatforming of Franklin Graham and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association venue bookings around the country. We had to uh, do a bit of comment on it. Um, where do you, who decides who shouldn't have a venue? Who decides who decides? Where are the lines that we draw for who should and shouldn't have a venue? I mean, should we stop the, the Labour Party from booking any venues because their commission found that the leadership were anti-Semitic? Should we? Don't not. No, we shouldn't. No, we shouldn't, because they're a political party and they're entitled to, have, to book venues because we need political parties. The point is, where, where, where do you draw the lines on this? And who draws the lines? And how? And why? This is just people responding to the zeitgeist, to the dominant discourse of the day. They're just going with the flow uh, of, of, of what they believe is, is dominant. And a word on the issue of uh, marriage at, at the centre of all of this, which was the, the issue around Tim Pratt and Rob Plello. It's the issue on the Billy Graham thing, I can tell you that right now. Although the West has been slowly disengaging from the, uh, the tenets of the God of the Bible for some time now, without doubt the biggest single factor, the biggest shift in this, was the redefinition of marriage by David Cameron. Or... or as David Cameron would more accurately describe it, the privatisation of marriage. His entire policy um, framework was built on a book by Sunstein and Thane Thaler called Nudge, about what's called libertarian paternalism or choice architecture. So, influencing people to make little choices that make the state less regulatory in their lives. Good ideas in it, a lot of it. The penultimate chapter, which is why we have a redefinition of marriage, is entitled The Privatisation of Marriage. That's what's happened. Marriage has now been given to the free market and will be redefined over and over and over and over. You've got multiple throuples now. You've got polyamory and all people marrying inanimate objects and stuff. I mean, you know, could I marry Everton Football Club? Actually, could I divorce Everton Football Club? It's a better, better question, isn't it, really? But, you know, I mean, where, where do you stop on, on this? But this change changed everything. Up to recently, every politician, you'll remember if you're old enough, would go into a, an election campaign saying, I believe marriage is the bedrock of our society and the building block of it. They don't say that anymore. The reason they used to say it is because it is. Without marriage, the state has no legitimacy. Marriage is it's part of the Godhead. 
It's fundamental to the, to the hist- historic salvific narrative that we're all in. The wedding supper of the Lamb. The consummation of all things. The bride, the bridegroom and everything else. From Eden to Revelation. There it is. This is part of the God plan. Central to it. And when you shift it to basically consumerize it, um, there are consequences to that. Which we try to draw people's attention to at the time. The big consequence of it is that marriage, when you redefine marriage as being that central building block, you redefine everything else that's built on it. So, you create what we call a new social orthodoxy, a new norm, a new set of normals in terms of relationships. They become far more transactional rather than covenantal, etc. There's a whole range of uh, things that happen around it. It's a new set of norms. And importantly, the state... The authorities, because this has now changed legislatively, it's basically the change of a human constitution. So if you change our constitution to have a Bill of Rights, imagine changing our human constitution. The consequences of this are that this new social orthodoxy, the state is obliged now, obliged to legally and coercively enforce it. Okay? Legally and coercively enforce it, which means that if you're a Christian, a Jew, or you've got working class values, or you've got any other values that see marriage in a different way, the opposite of orthodoxy is heresy. Okay? You're outside of the state. I said to a a group of Catholic uh, cardinals in Strasbourg a few years ago, I said, look, on the bright side, we're all heretics now. You know? (laughs) Which which they seem to like, you know? We're united in our heresy. But this presents us with challenges for engaging in public life, not least because the way we've engaged in public with the authorities has mostly been built on um, Paul's uh, explication of of, of how and why in Romans 13. And there's a few points, I don't think you can read that, it's a bit small. But, you know, this is is the scripture that says, you know, uh, the authorities don't carry a sword for nothing. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If honour, pay honour. Uh, and these are the principles that, he, that uh, Paul draws out that the authorities have been instituted by God law is not a bad thing it's not a bad, we need it and they should conform to his character uh, it should be limited authorities should be limited to restrain evil and promote good uh, authorities, governments can be corrupted by various idolatries tell me about it Prayer, Christian prayer, service and leadership is vitally important for government and authority. We, you know, we have an effect and we have a responsibility. Christians should be model citizens and also should be involved in the authorities. These are the principles upon which Christian engagement in public life has been built for one and a half thousand years. And then also Christians should never give critical, uncritical allegiance to any authority, state or government, since their first loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all this was framed in a deeply hostile Roman culture, the book of Romans was written, which over time was transformed by the salt and light of Christianity, you know, civilizations come and go. However, so profound and rapid is the shift in our cultural climate change at this moment in time that we're experiencing in the West, that I believe we are beginning to see once again the features of that context that Paul was writing in. Again, 
Now, you know, I could, I could do all sorts of Bible studies on where our culture is, and the Bible says a lot, I think, prophetically speaking into where we are now. But for me, the very best overview of where we are is Romans 1. And if you want to do some homework, and uh, you just read and reflect on Romans 1 and try and see our culture and see the features of our culture through that Romans 1. Importantly, in Romans 1, Paul identifies a five-point, there's more in there, but it's a, there are five, there's five key points or principles, observations about culture that are overlapping and also sequential. They kind of feed onto each other as well. And I just want to walk, uh, walk quickly through these ones today. How are we doing for time, boss? We're good? We're good, okay. The, fi- uh, the first one is... God is rejected, you know. It it, it talks about rebellion against the God who created all things and people being without excuse. Well, I don't need to revisit what I've just talked about. The secular century, we're in a period of an outflow of a rejection of God. Renaissance humanism, secular humanism, however you want to describe it, we are where we are right now culturally. Uh, Godlessness. Godlessness. People reject God. Some people call today's context, they've labelled it as neo-paganism. Like a new paganism. Or as the MP Frank Field once said, uh, his saying is, normal service has resumed. So by which he means, left to our own devices, we create a pretty barbaric culture. And Christianity is a completely unique, unusual tempering of human relationships. And when you remove it, we just return back to the way we actually really are. Okay. Number two. uh, People become idolatrous. We are wired to worship. We will worship something, someone, somehow, because we can't not worship. You know, I have to check this on Everton Football Club. You know, I mean, seriously, you know... Sport, idolatry can be anything, can't it? It can be football, it can be sex, money, status, fashion, you name it, anything. People, worship people. Uh, Okay. Just, Just quickly, let me just go back. There are two... There are two idols. There's a link between idolatry... An ideology, okay? And there are two idols that I see everywhere, because I would see everywhere, because this is what I'm trained to do, that dominate the thinking in society of our leaders in society today. And the first one is cultural Marxism. This is the idea that everything must change and all our institutions must be degraded and then be replaced by a revolution, a communist revolution, um, and that will give us greater equality. This is a reality. This is a, a reality in the, in the Western world, in Western leaders, leadership thinking. But more recently, it's been joined by postmodernism and relativism and the idea that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and, and, and that's the way we go. Now, and that's all about seeing everything. All form and structure is oppressive, so you've got to deconstruct, smash everything. Think about how these two ideologies work together. One twists, the other one breaks. They are utterly destructive to human life. And they 
are actually working in tandem together in politics. They actually should be opposed. They don't make sense. They're contradictory on so many levels. But they're united by one thing. They both detest Christianity. Okay? Praise the Lord. But, but I see these everywhere and, you know, and they are, you know, as secularism is delivered by sexualism, they are, they provide the oxygen and the language for that to happen in so many ways. And, you know, I would say that behind every ideology there's an idol and behind every idol there's a demon. Behind every ideology, uh, every ideology there's an idol and behind every idol there's a demon. Okay. The next phase that Paul um, identifies is uh, people become stupid. Like, they just literally like, go gaga and just start doing and saying stupid things. Folly. And, you know, this is, we see this in society today because the struggle to rationalise and justify increasingly irrational thoughts and behaviours, uh, views, values, lifestyle choices, it's resulted in our higher education systems just looking ridiculous. I mean, absolutely ridiculous, particularly social sciences and the humanities. It's just insane. Uh, and this is basically an assault on truth, and it's an assault on truth. I wonder if I can... Ah, that's, I, that was idols. I wanted to show you this image. I took this image in here. I went to an Everton-West Ham game uh, a while ago, and uh, I was walking past a shop in Newham, and I just thought... Look, it's idols are us. Look how many idols are in this shop. And you can get your phone fixed as well. There's even a giraffe there. I don't know what that's doing there, but bizarre. Idols. These images. Why we've gone stupid as a society. The first, these are Time magazine covers. The first one's from 1968. The high point of the kind of secular process, secularization. Is God dead? That's the question everyone was asking. Is it over now? Is God dead? Clever. 50 years later, they produce a similar cover. Is truth dead? Because if you lose God, you lose an objective reference point for truth, reality, the universe and everything. And you are, to use Nietzsche's words, we're in a position where he said, when the earth is unchained from the sun, it's like a solar system that just goes out of completely out of kilter. I love this image. It sums it up really well. We lose God, we lose, we lose uh, truth. And one of the consequences of that, that I'll, I'll come by another quote by the uh, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He, sa- he observed this. He said, without truth, there can be no honesty. Without honesty, there can be no trust. Think about this in public life today. Without trust, there can be no communication. And without communication, there can be no society. That is happening all around us, constantly, constantly. And listen to the words of a, a, you've heard of Jordan Peterson, the Canadian professor of psychology who gets into trouble all the time, uh, saying controversial things. I think he's quite entertaining, but there we go. He's fighting back against secularism, sexualism in his own way. And he said this, and this guy's not a Christian, and and I want to read this, he's talking about this from a psychological perspective, truth. He says, the truth is something that burns. It burns off dead wood. And people don't like, uh, people don't like uh, having the dead wood burnt off because they're 95% dead wood. <laughs> Believe me, he says, I'm not being snide. It's no joke. When you start to realise how much of what you've constructed of yourself is based on deception and lies, 
it's a horrifying realisation. It can easily be 95% of you and the things you say and the things you act out. He goes on. There's a principle at the heart of Western civilization, the idea of the Logos, which means something like a coherent interpersonal communication of the truth. And from an archetypal perspective, uh, he's talking about Jesus here, it's the action of the Logos that extracts order from chaos. We make order by articulating truth and then we inhabit the order. What Christianity did was take that proposition and turn it into a symbolic doctrine taking the figure of Christ, who from a psychological and archetypal perspective is the ideal man, an image of the ideal, which is the word made flesh, the instantiation of the Logos in the body, so it's acted out in the world. It's amazing this, isn't it? He says, it's the fundamental proposition of Western culture, and we've lost it, and we will not survive without it. So we have a situation now where ideology is increasingly trumping science and feelings and emotions matter more than knowledge. Knowledge and facts. Truth is subjective rather than objective. And whereas once our universities used to teach people how to search for universal truth, it's what a university is, the search for universal truth. They're now called monoversities. They teach people how to deny truth or to find their own truth. And whereas once critical reasoning and scientific inquiry was encouraged, they're now restricted by ideology. I was talking to a professor of human biology at the London School of Economics recently. It was an Italian Catholic who came to an evangelical fundraiser. Um, and he said he cannot talk about anatomical, biological differences between men and women. Can't do it. So he basically said, I can't, I can't do my job. I cannot discuss biology. It's incredible, isn't it? This is really happening. And whereas once universities used to teach people how not to give offence, they now teach people how to find and take offence, which has resulted in identity politics, intersectionality, what some people call the oppression Olympics, and no platforming, safe spaces, censorship and all that. And all this is directly related to what Paul identifies next, which is the fact that sexuality is corrupted and identity. This is a poster that was put up at the Labour Party conference in 2018 in Liverpool. It was put up nearby by a feminist group. There's nothing on this poster except a cut-and-pasted dictionary definition. Woman, noun, adult, human, female. It was up for three days and it was taken down because it constituted hate speech. A dictionary definition of a woman constitutes hate speech. I mean, I love this stuff, honestly. I mean, this is like... You know, and the, the, the woman who ran it, the feminist, uh, uh, the leader of a feminist group, she was amazing. She took them all on on, on the TV, and good on her, you know. Um, historically, public understandings of sex have always revealed deeper truths about society. That's what sex does, and the, the Greeks and the Romans, they understood this, but too late for their civilizations. They did. They, they understood it, but too late. I want to show a clip now. I think we, uh, the next slide should have a video clip on it for a few minutes, and this is, gives you an example of where thinking is in higher education institutions. This is a set of interviews, uh, a, a chap done on the campus of Washington State University recently. Great, it works. 
There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. So if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're if you truly believe you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I'd say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a 6'5 Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult?
actually a whole set of videos they do on that site that are similar to that. Um, my goodness me. But it gives you an, uh, an indication of how the condition of our culture intellectually. There's a lot of books out there at the moment. The, the closing of the American mind, the coddling of the American mind, um, how people have just lost touch with reality on so many bases. But reality bites back, as we know, because that's the nature of reality. The last point is, uh, that I want to make is that um, morality is, is inverted. The last point that Paul makes in, in, in the, uh, this five-point process is that wickedness increases, and by which I mean the state, the authorities promote what is wrong as being what is right and denigrate what is right as being what is wrong. Just a, a reversal of that. And we see now today the concept of sin is increasingly denied and yet the practice and celebration of what constituted sin is legally and coercively enforced. And a good example of this can be seen um, or attempted example, can be seen with the named person legislation that was proposed up in Scotland. And this was a plan that hasn't gone away and has come back once and was defeated again and has come back, coming back now, I've been told, in another, under another name. Um, this is a plan to provide every child in Scotland, every child, with a state-appointed alternative parent every child, right? I know Stalin could only dream of these things, you know. Really, and thankfully it was shot down by the Supreme Court um, uh, a couple of years ago. And when they they shot it down, they, they, they said this in their judgment. They said the first thing a totalitarian regime tries to do is to get to the children, to distance them from the subversive varied influences of their families and indoctrinate them in the ruler's view of the world. Within limits, families must be left to bring up their children their own way. That's in the UK today, right? That's not North Korea or China or somewhere, you know. That's here today. And also in Scotland, we had this poster campaign by the Scottish Government uh, saying, Dear bigots, you can't spread your religious hate here. End of sermon. Notice the font, like a biblical font. When it was gently pointed out to them that the posters are actually quite bigoted against religious people, they eventually withdrew them. But these were everywhere, all over Scotland. The mind boggles, doesn't it? You know. As you can imagine, in our advocacy work, we're dealing with a, a lot of public policy challenges now, a lot of uh, government proposals. I'll just run through a few of them. Um, that would do. I mean, we deal with all sorts of issues, wide range, poverty, employment, gambling, drugs policy, uh, abortion and euthanasia. It's going to be a big issue this year, abortion. Uh, And we're presently dealing with freedom of speech issues around hate speech, hate crime, subjectively defined and politically measured. So they say, oh, hate crime's up the scale uh, because of Brexit. Across all the protected characteristics. I said, what? Disabled people are getting attacked because of Brexit. People, and it, what it is, is people can record hate incidences. So, s- someone can be on a bus and they can feel that someone's looked at them the wrong way or not even acknowledge them they're there. They can then phone 
and say, I feel like I've been subjected to a hate crime. That's recorded as a hate incident. It's fed into the government machine that then justifies policies and procedures from that point onwards. I'm not kidding you. That's the way it works today. And it, it ends in censorship. Think of Franklin Graham and all that. And only yesterday we had our uh, education secretary made a really encouraging statement that they're going to deal with attacks on free speech in universities, you know. So it, there's, there's an encouraging, there are encouraging signs that some people are waking up to the fact that you, you, this is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable way to live. Recently we've had to deal with the counter-extremism and safeguarding bill. Safeguarding was added the day before it was brought to Parliament. Um, which had within it an idea to create a category, a legal category, in our culture of non-violent extremism. Non-violent extremism. You know, like Jesus. You know, like Mahatma Gandhi. Like Martin Luther King. Non-violent extremism. Can you imagine if we created a law? They tried 50 times to frame it, and it couldn't be done. But the fact that they're trying to frame these laws, can you imagine how governments like Saudi Arabia and China would operate if we had a law on non-violent extremism? Can you imagine the implications for human rights across the world? They'd be profound. Within the counter-extremism, um, and, and the process with counter-extremism is this, radicalisation, terrorism, attacks, they happen, the media, they expand it all, politicians react rather than respond, and then civil servants completely subvert the entire process and uh, try and bring in secularism through it. That's the process. And then the fifth element is our freedoms diminish. Within this bill, we have the proposals for out-of-school settings, now known as children not in schools, which was the, the state wanting to regulate every single place that children gathered uh, over six hours, aggregated or disaggregated over a week in the entire country and register with Ofsted and register what's being taught there as well as where it's being taught. Just think about that. We headed that off. This is the work that we do that most people don't even, are not even aware of. Well, we work in partnership with a whole load of others. There's all sorts of issues with expansive notions of harm in this kind of legislation, safeguarding, which is a good thing, has been weaponised by secularists against Christians. That's why we had to produce a resource um, a few years ago looking at this. Some people want to generate uh, the idea that there's a special category of abuse called spiritual abuse. You know, well, like, think about it. You could have football abuse or sports abuse or Hollywood abuse or... It's, there's a whole industry trying to unfold around this stuff. Abuse is abuse is abuse and the law, the full weight of the law needs to be brought down on it. Most of this stuff is an abuse of power, you know, in any context. But the dangers of introducing this distinct category are just incredible for... Uh, it will be the end of um, ecclesial authority, just overnight. So that, that's being weaponised. We fight that stuff. We've had the integration strategy, the... Uh, this is the move by the government to try and integrate people into a sense of being British, a distinctly secular sense of being British. Dame Louise Casey, who ran the, um, the study of this, uh, concluded that Christians need to do more to integrate into British society. Um, 
Yep. Um, and then we've got the British values debate. What does it mean to be British and all these values, like, you know, values such as the rule of law. The rule of law is not a value. It's a fact. A democracy, that's not a value. It's a system. And we have to constantly keep uh, working into this stuff. And then we've got education. Key. Key battleground right now. We knew it would be. The state is supplanting parents everywhere to enforce the new orthodoxy. Um, I was on the moral maze before Christmas talking about what's happened in the Parkfield School uh, and other schools in the Birmingham area with the Muslim communities in them who do not want their children exposed to what is LGBTQIA plus propaganda. It's an entire program of propaganda. It's not about living in a diverse society. You can teach that in a couple of lessons. And I think most of these schools are pretty good at that as well, to be fair. Anyway, <laughs> that's what's happening in education. We've got relationships and sex education, or as it's known in Wales, relationships and sexuality education. And we've just produced a set of resources. If you're a parent or a grandparent and you want some support in this, we've just produced some excellent resources on, the prime, on how to understand and navigate this on a primary level. And the secondary resources will be, I think, coming out this week. Uh, really good resources. Uh, we've got challenges to home education, the government trying to square the circle and make sure not what's taught at home is not counter to the orthodoxy. We've got independent schools uh, standards being changed, so independent schools can't teach anything different from the orthodoxy. And we've got the Ofsted inspection framework, like an empire expanding over everything. We've, got, we've had uh, proposals for gender identity in policy, the idea of creating a third gender or what we call self-declaration. You know, I can, de I can define what I want and, I, you know, I can define as a Man United supporter today and not that I would. But um, you, can, you, you can define yourself uh, and the chaos this will cause would be just, would be entertaining on one level. And we're seeing employment challenges to Christians who dissent from the new orthodoxy, i.e. people who refuse to use transgender pronouns or, or, or express views that marriage is between a man and a woman, which I believe it is. And I believe, you know, I, I have to acknowledge the fact that the laws change. I have to respect the fact that the laws change. But I believe that the fact is a fiction. And I, that's what it means to live in a free society. I'm allowed to say that, aren't I? <laughs> I hope so. Um, increasingly not <laughs> but you know in, a, in response to the political and pastoral challenges that the whole gender term is, is bringing we've produced uh, this resource and it, it's very brief but it just gives an overview of where things are what the kind of thinking around things and the responses are and, and importantly how to differentiate between the pastoral and the political as you engage in these issues which is really important because you're dealing with people who need love um, and then we've had issues coming ahead down the line. Conversion therapy, the government have committed to ending conversion therapy, uh, which apparently, without any definition, conversion therapy means corrective rape. Uh, we'd never even heard of that. Uh, we do, didn't even know it existed, but they're going to bring in legislation um, to end conversion therapy. We'll be working on that. And in terms of the longer-term picture, what we have seen in a number of our discussions in recent years, and this is regardless of which government of the day is in, I'm talking about the state, the people in the departments of state that we have to deal with, is this idea of the social construction of age, which could dwarf the LGBTQIA plus thing 
in terms of its impact. This is the idea of the state. It's, it's based on children's rights, and it's the only place, really, that the liberal progressive ideology can go next. It's the next frontier. It, it's the idea that children should have rights, more rights, in the home against the parents. It's like civic rights, political rights. And also, and this is the key, this is what it's all about, rights over their own bodies. That's really what it's all about. And then in all of this policy stuff, you've got Brexit. Great. You know, it's just like, which has been utter chaos and it's ruined the parliamentary football team programme for the last few years. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the silver lining about Brexit, and there's all sorts of pros and cons, whichever side of the argument you want to land on, for me, the silver lining is it's exposed, brought light to the shortcomings of our political system and our political culture. No matter how you look at it, people are scratching their heads looking at what our parliament, thinking what on earth is going on there. And we'll see changes from that. And I'll just summarise very, very quickly now and we'll probably stop for some questions and then uh, we'll turn it. Okay. All of this, and there's a whole load of policy stuff I've not really touched on uh, that we're dealing with, is presenting the church with a set of paradoxes. Paradox. And you know, a, par a paradox is something that is, but, sh but shouldn't actually be, logically. The best analogy for paradox is carrot cake. You know, carrots shouldn't go in cakes. Cakes, go, but, you know, it kind of works somehow. I, I don't know how it works, but it does. Carrot cake. We're faced by an, uh, a whole set of paradoxes. The first paradox is this. The paradox of secularism. It's never been more powerful and influential and it's never been so weak and vulnerable. Okay? It's utterly exposed and it's being seen to... It, it does not work and is not sustainable as a way of doing culture and society. And people are seeing it. You know, in the 1960s, um, Berger, Peter Berger, the sociologist, produced his seminal text, The Secularization Thesis, that the world was becoming ever more atheistic and naturally, over time, religion would just be dispersed to a sort of this private, small minority pursuit. To his credit, 12 years later, he revised his secularization thesis and called it the desecularization thesis and acknowledged that he got it completely wrong and that the world is becoming ever more religious and at a rapid rate of knots. And Christianity is leading that religious, it's not just it's Hinduism and Islam and even Judaism. You know, the, most Jews in the UK are going to be Orthodox Jews in the next 10 years. That's just the way it is. Massive families, you know. Um, but it's, it's expanding all over the world. Um, globally, we have a boilerplate thing on our website that says we're part, a founding member of the World Evangelical Alliance that is part of a network that supports 500 million evangelicals around the world. 500 million. That was written 18 years ago after a little bit of research. We think that it's quite possible that the number now, today, is 1.2 billion. You're allowed to say wow there, because that, what that means is, what that means is, it's more than doubled in 18 years. Just think about that. That is like, that's mind-blowing. And we, we do need to do a bit of research on this, don't we? The problem is it's, it's so massive and so, it's moving so quickly, it's, it's hard to measure.
And even in Europe, we've got 10 million more evangelicals. You know, Calvin, Calvin had a, there was an anniversary of Calvinism in France a few years ago, and the, the, the French media were really disturbed that they, they had a big festival for Calvinism, and they expected 100,000 people to turn up, and a million people turned up. A million people. They were all predestined, obviously. But, but, but you know, isn't that incredible? And the French didn't know what to, to do with that. And we've got the reverse missionary movement. We've got, you know, Nigerians are everywhere. There'll be Nigerians on the moon, probably. You know I mean? They, they're just everywhere evangelizing, and the church is growing uh, exponentially. Uh, and also, South Asia, one of the biggest phenomenons we're seeing, in my, uh, I go to a New Frontiers church near Bedford. It's a big church, have two meetings on a Sunday, about a thousand in each meeting, right? Loads of converts from Hinduism and from Islam. Loads. Uh, it's a very multicultural area, but they're coming to faith. They're, it's actually happening, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon we're seeing in the UK. Um, so what does this paradox mean for the way we engage in public life? The second paradox... The paradox of liberty, freedom. Let me just explain this. The state is growing exponentially in our lives. What we call the imperial regulatory state, like a huge octopus pushing its way into hitherto off-limit parts of our private lives. The state is growing. How do we stop this? How do we check the state growing? And the law is changing Law used to be framed on a biblical basis. So law existed in the UK um, to protect people against injustice by consent. To protect people against... That's a biblical view of law. That's why law exists. I'm not a lawyer, but I've been working with lawyers a lot in the last few years. The problem is now we've moved to what's called legal positivism. Law is now framed with this thinking. What is not legal is forbidden. What is not legal is forbidden. North Korea, we're back there again. That's exactly what that, where that takes you. What is not legal is forbidden. So if the statutory authorities don't have something to say on this, you can't do it. So to shift from uh, negative to positive liberties, uh, which is profound. So how should we respond to that, these changes? Their paradox, the paradox of our citizenship, my PhD was on citizenship, our place and our role in engagement with the state. Our relationship with the state has changed, is changing and will change. The, the phrase I often use is that we are needed but not wanted. So, Christians are doing more around the country in terms of meeting needs, providing services and goods all over the place, housing, looking after the elderly, the young. And they're doing it better, by the way, as well, more professionally uh, and in a more interconnected way as well which is amazing, you know, street pastors, food banks you know, medical care, you name it um, I could tell you so many good stories about this stuff and we need to tell them stories but the state that we're dealing with really wants this stuff and really cheers us on but then really doesn't want us and booze us and this is the same it could be the same local authority or the same government that could be funding you to do this will be mounting a legal challenge against you to do, because you believe this or say this. And that is disorientating. That is a paradox that it's, it's a reality. We've just got to hold that intention. How do we navigate our citizenship status? Uh, what does it mean? How can we live faithfully in that? And the last paradox is, and I've mentioned this before, the paradox of the gospel. Nominal Christianity is dying fast 
in the UK and in, across the Western world fast. Cultural Christianity, people who think they're Christians because they've been born in a Christian country, whatever that means, um, and because they've got a passport, often. Real Christianity. Wilberforce wrote a book years ago, right, that transformed this country. Wilberforce was a genius, you know that. Um, he wrote a book, and it's a long title, listen to this. It was called A Practical View of the Prevailing System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in this country as contrasted with real Christianity. <laughs> Nails it. You know, real Christianity, Christianity that is going after God, that is biblically based, spirit-led, and outwardly focused, is growing. I mean, everywhere. Urban, rural, black, white. In this country. The other kind of thing, where people think it's a kind of club, you're part of a club, um, that's withering and, and pretty fast. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And there are opportunities as well. For the, there are obstacles for the gospel in all sorts of ways. But there are also opportunities. People are far more open to talking about Jesus and the things of God, we find, than they have been in many generations. And it seems that the shaking is also bringing a softening of hearts. You know, it's, it's a real moment of opportunity. It seems, it seems easier to just get into conversations with people about who Jesus is and, and why we need him. So, there's a paradox there. So, I hope you found that um, helpful and interesting and not too depressing. Uh, and the paradoxes and stuff, they've given you some uh, food for thought for uh, questions and discussion. And I'll probably uh, hand over to Gary at this point. Thank you. Um, Tim, could you get the radio mic first just in case people have got questions and people need to be easier for people to hear as well. I think it's very challenging stuff. A lot of things there to, to think about. Some things might went over your head, some things might went in deep, but it's an opportunity just for what we've got Dave here to ask questions, explore and, and um, things you're thinking about. I don't know about you, but a lot of things that go in society, I get confused quite easily and go, what to understand, what to believe here, how to engage with this. So, yeah, I think it's, it's an opportunity. So if you've got questions for Dave, um, do, do ask him. If you want to ask me a question, you can ask me a question, but <laughs> probably get the wrong answer. Yeah. I take issue with Romans 13 about being subjected to authority. Supposing authority is evil, like this one. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Romans 13 calls us to be subject to the authorities. Many Christians over many centuries have struggled with this. And, and it, is, it is a contextual thing, I think. You, I, look at Christians in China right now. They have a... I mean, Xi is an, an oppressive dictator that is going after the church and also going after other faiths as well. How do they live? Well, they obey the rule of law. They do not stop fellowshipping together. And they pray for a change in that society. And I believe it will happen. At some point, and I, and I, I guess we do, we've got comfortable in the West because we've not had the, this experience of the state being like that, you know, being that pressure. But we've got to start thinking what you we've got to start running these questions through our minds at this moment in time. How do we deal with the state that's set against us? 
in certain ways and, and makes us feel uncomfortable. So I don't think, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's contextual as much as anything, but I do know that over centuries Christians have, you know, we, we not only outlive cultures and civilizations, but we outdie them as well. And I guess we probably need to do that. Uh, I just a comment first, and that is that was a very engaging hour that you've given us. I thought made me think about a lot of things that you don't normally think about when you come into church, which is a good thing. Um, I want to bring it down to a what you what you might consider this to be perhaps I don't know too simplistic, or um, but I'm basically quite a simple practical bloke, so. I want to give you a scenario. I come to church on a Sunday morning and a new person walks through the door who is clearly a transgender person and they come and sit in the church and they decide that they like what they see in our church family and they want to become part of that church family. How do we deal with that as a Christian community? That's a, that's a great question, and one of the reasons I will never be a pastor. <laughs> You'd want the bumps on your head feeling, wouldn't you? Uh, but no, that is a, this is what we're dealing with, and this is why we produced the Transformed Resource, and we have another deeper theological resource to come with that. There's also a brilliant book, different from the transgenderism one that we produced a few years ago, called Biblical and Pastoral Responses to Homosexuality, which is... It's, it's absolutely, it was peer-reviewed by 78 people. I mean, it's really, really good. Um, we do a lot of work with Living Out, which are a group uh, of uh, Christians from across a, a kind of broad spectrum of evangelicalism uh, and Catholicism that, d- d- that have an experience same-sex attraction or, or are dealing with it or living with it right now. Many of them are leaders and theologians, and they... They are brilliant people. They're amazing people. And they help churches to gear themselves to be pastoral and loving and to be welcoming but not affirming. And that's the phrase that keeps running through uh, this, this issue. Because we're going to see a lot more of this. And the, the LGBTQIA plus community is also now seeing what we predicted many years ago, which is many people coming out of their lifestyles and getting saved and they do not know what to do with these people because their, their discourse is so radical. Uh, we, we had a set of teaching. I do think you need to prepare the church to understand the sexuality and identity issues biblically, to understand that there's a difference between the pastoral love and compassion. There's no substitute for that and that's what we're here for. And the political taking on these ideologies which you, we've got to do. You've got to do it. And if you can distinguish between the two, it's pretty good. Our church last year ran a nine-week teaching course in a big church on basically sex and relationships, you know, which is a bit like, you know, me and my wife were in the 50s, we're in our 50s and we're going again thinking, oh, God, it's about sex again. You know, I mean, it's like every week you're thinking, oh, God, here we go. But you know what? There's loads of teenagers there and there's loads of kids there and they need to understand what God says and thinks 
about how we relate to each other sexually and in other ways as well, you know, singleness, marriage and all that stuff. So preparing the church is important, but having a leadership that understands that, you you know, we should be welcoming, but we don't need to be affirming. If If you're affirming of these particular ideological identities, where are you going to draw the lines? Working with children? You know? Where, where are you going to draw the lines? And how are, you, how are you going to counsel people? How are you going to have them conversations with them? How are you going to walk with them over a long period of time? Because I guess this, this stuff is, you know, it takes a long time to, to work through. I don't think there's any easy answer to that one. I just, I, yeah, it's tough. As, as, a, as a pastor, I do have to deal with these situations and deal with people who are transgender, even within my own churches, and their situations, and, we, and, and it's that separation from your doctrine, your, 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 your ideology, your, what the Bible says, and, and often that pastoral extension of love and welcome and hospitality in the church, that, that we welcome all people and love all people, but our, it, does, it means maybe how we see how, uh, how, what the Bible says, what our belief is as evangelicals is, it's, it's not affirming to their lifestyle or what they do, but but they are welcomed and loved in our churches and feel part of it and feel part of the family. And that, that's the most important thing that we have to do, that when people come in here who are, who, who are transgender, that they feel loved and they can be part of this family and can be, be integrated and be part of it. And, that, and what I feel is the church should be the safest place in the world for people who are transgender. Because where they go outside, they're looked at and they're, they're gawked at and we should be able to welcome. It's not just the sexuality stuff. I've got a friend of mine who's a pastor in Liverpool and I went to his church a while ago and there's all these uh, Asian guys, like tens of them in the corner of the church. I said, and, uh, and someone said, they, they come from the, you know, the local mosque. I said, oh, it's brilliant. You've got all these, these uh, ex-Muslims, all these people come to faith. And he said, no, no, they are Muslims. They're not, they're not actually Christians. They're all Muslims. But they just love coming to the church. <laughs> right? so, no, really, seriously. Right? And I was like, hang on a minute. Over time, they all come to faith. <laughs> you know, they just love being where the, where the gospel is. And I also think as well, one of the, I'm not a theologian, but I do think that in the last 20, 30 years, where there's been a lack of emphasis on the doctrine of regeneration, we, we, we'll have problems. This, it, there's a conversation in the US at the moment, you know, what defines an evangelical Be- Bevington's quadrilateral taxonomy and all this stuff. Oh, you know. uh, anyway, this, this guy's come back with a very simple, and it's really picking up traction. He's coming back to this statement that Jesus said about being born again and being a new life and being transformed and following the way. We follow the way. The way is not the way of the world. So when, when God comes upon you, wherever you're coming from, whether it's from Bootle in Liverpool or a sort of subculture of crime and drugs or whether it's from this, that and the other, yeah, something's got to change, you know? Everything's got to change. Yeah, I think that's important. That seemed like quite a lot about the dangers of the ideologies that are current, and obviously there are quite a lot, but I was wondering what do you see as the positives? What do you see in society at the moment that you think, as Christians, we need to really get behind this and support it? Three, three political ideologies that you can see all sorts of positives in. Conservatism. 
a regard for conserving what's good and what we inherit. Yeah, great. There's a whole sort of biblical kind of narrative there that you can understand that, inheriting and regarding, you know, Edmund Burke, we, we need regard for the dead, the living and the unborn, this generational interconnectivity. Great. Um, socialism, or left, or whatever it's called now in all sorts of different ways. Regard for equality, material, addressing material deprivation. Come on, I mean, if we're not doing that, what are we, what are we here for? You know, absolutely. And by the way, the, you know, the Christian roots of that spectrum are very much Methodist in, in all sorts of different ways. And then even liberalism. Individual freedom of conscience, of speech, of association. Absolutely. They're all rooted in, in, in Christian thought, these ideologies in different ways. You could even make a point that communism... I mean, as Homer Simpson says, in theory, communism works in theory. You know? I mean, communism is basically, it's, it, it, it's the kingdom of God without God. It's a great idea on all sorts of levels, I think so. But it just can't work. And I think that's one of the challenges we've got in our culture now. We just need to say, you know, if you want to do democracy, this idea of enfranchising people with decisions periodically and over different levels of how we're governed, then if you take the Christian values out of it, of forgiveness, of you know, giving way to others and regarding others, of love your neighbour, love your neighbour is the basis of plural society. You don't make your neighbour like you, you don't assimilate them, uh, which secularism does. You, you respect them, and you give them a place around the table. And if we need to keep getting back to the fact that if you take Christianity out it's going to look different and, and, and that's where we are now we, you know, it's going to look different if you remove Christianity so there's a lot of good there and we should always recognise the good I believe yeah I noticed you said this poster about uh, sort of bigots go home type of thing in Scotland. How do you, what are the gracious responses to somebody who says, oh, well, you're just bigoted? Uh, well, you could say that's quite a bigoted remark. <laughs> Seriously. That's quite a bigoted remark in a liberal democracy. What is the basis for that remark? I mean, the thing about Jesus is, Jesus is full of truth and grace. You know, and Christians can do truth abuse, which is beating people over the head with the truth of God. We can also do grace abuse, which is we just, we just kinder and gentler to the point where the tr we don't attend to the truth. So people end up confused and just going on with uh, harmful lifestyles. You know, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And I do, I do think that Jesus' model of a servant, a servant, a sacrificial servant, a lamb, and a warrior king, you know, like taking stuff on, that's the kind of Christian that, if we can integrate them two things and, and model Christ. Is that answering the question? I don't think it is, is it? Well, yes and no. Let, hear me out here, right? I think the church, or I don't think I know, the church in the UK is unbelievably middle class. And that means that it brings with it a whole set of middle class um, predispositions and, and values that 
You know, some are good, some are not so good. Where I come from, everybody will just say to you, but you're wrong and you're talking rubbish. And, and you're like, oh, well, all right, whatever. And then you, you don't take it personally. But where I now work and live in London, I mean, look at that video of these people on Washington State. The, the, the thing they ended with, I wouldn't want to say you were wrong. Well, why not? What if you are? What if you believe they're wrong? And I do think that Christians are, because of that class dynamic, overly gracious. Now, there's a minority of people who are unbelievably ungracious, and they do not make my job any easier, and I have to have conversations with them regularly um, about how unhelpful they are. They, they fulfil all these negative caricatures and stereotypes that the Guardians spin up every now and again. But I do think we need to be a little bit more vocal and a little bit more courageous um, about the issue. Because the issues are, ideas have consequences and they're coming for our kids. And if you can't get animated about that, then what, you know, what are we here for? Hi, I can't hear myself. Yes. Hi, um, I'm a new Christian. So I was faced with a lot of questions at the beginning um, one of my friends, he's actually gay, and he is very curious about God and Jesus. So one of the questions he um, had for me was, when I was just talking about God, the Bible, and everything, was, um, what's your view about me? Um, and I said, well, I love you as a Christian. So I went back into compassion, and then he kept pressing on the question, and I actually said to him, because I find that, as a Christian, it's your responsibility not to be a stumbling block to another person. Um, so I said, you know what, this is above my pay grade. And uh, if you want to actually have this conversation, I can invite my pastor and you can talk to him. <laughs> because it's not my responsibility right now to speak about that. Um, just because I felt like the enemy used relationships and he will put a barrier. So I said to him, look, I welcome you, I love you, and his preferences do not come in between our relationship. And I said to him, I always love you no matter what you do. And I think for someone that is constantly rejected, something that he wants to hear. So I think, yes, as a Christian, yes, we, we can be more vocal, but depend on the circumstances. Um, because that can be a hindrance. I, I, I think you're very wise to defer to the pastor on these issues. No, no, seriously. It's okay not to know what to say. And that's wisdom, isn't it? Is it not? Um, there, there, are, there are a lot of really good material out there at this moment. You know, there's the book by David Bennett, A War of Loves. And I like that title. It's like, you know, there's a war of love going on for the hearts of everybody. Uh, and he, he is uh, same-sex attracted. He comes out to that whole lifestyle, and he's very good on these issues. The Living Out website, these guys, Ed Shaw, um, Sam Albury, these are, le- these are proper theologians who've thought this stuff through. Have a look at our biblical and pastoral responses. Have a little flick through that. I mean, I guess the, the key thing, though, is, is love. I, um, so my wife, she works in kind of art and fashion and all that lot in New York, right? Party party stuff. Um, and most of her friends are like gay hairdressers and stuff. 
So whenever I go over there, that's who we're with. And uh, they know that I'm a director of an evangelical organisation. And we've had some pretty full-on conversations, right? But we've also had some great fun. And I love them. And they know I love them. And, uh, you know, whether someone's gay or not gay, they can be a complete idiot and completely horrible. Or, you know, people are people, aren't they? And and you've got to take them as they find them. And how would you respond to someone who was... um, a Muslim. You see, it's exactly the same. There's in Christ and there's everything else. And, and God has got to do the work, has he not, in the hearts of people, uh, wherever they're coming from. There's loads of good stuff out there now. There wasn't a few years ago, but there, there really is now on, on these issues. Support. Any more questions? we go for lunch. We're quiet, are we? So thank you for being here. And as a lad from Liverpool and working in the environment that you do, how do you stay so positive and ready to share like this week in, week out? Because that's a tough call. Well done. You know it is. Um, my wife is amazing. She's like persona solara, um, and God gives you the peop- He puts people around you. Honestly, it's really, really tough. Our head of public policy moved on last year. He's an incredible man of God and an incredible gift to the church, but he's like obsessive compulsive. You know, and it kind of overwhelms you this stuff because it never stops. Um, we, you know, please do pray for me, pray for the evangelical lives, pray for the advocacy work, because it is government, where, where decisions are made that affect most people, is contended for spiritually. I'll talk about this in the next uh, session, but it, it really, really is, and you feel it sometimes. Um, but, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You've got to keep, you've got to take things seriously, but hold them lightly, haven't you? I'm not indispensable to this work. Uh, I'd rather go fishing I'd rather play football Uh, and you need people around you who will keep you grounded I mean I've got a family in Liverpool who keep me grounded uh, (laughs) a lot Uh, and that's important isn't it you know so uh, yeah and and fellowship as well you know we're here to encourage each other to give courage to each other um, you know, we need the Holy Spirit, we need the Word of God, but we've, we need each other. I mean, a lot. We need, I need people speaking into my life saying, you're wrong, that's stupid. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Yep. Well, shall we um, just, just pray for David? Just hold out your hands and just, we'll just pray for him and just ask God to to bless him and the advocacy and evangelical line. So, Father, we just thank you for Dave for sharing so boldly and bravely this morning. We thank you for the work that he does as a director of advocacy and evangelical lines and giving wisdom and understanding that comes from your Holy Spirit, Lord, because you're building a kingdom, Lord, and you're equipping those who will build it, Lord. You're giving the skills, the understanding, the wisdom, the knowledge, the abilities to build your kingdom, Father, and we thank you that you equip us to do it, and we thank you that you've given Dave 
that you've given the advocacy group, you've given Evangelical Alliance to start to, to, to speak for us in society and the madness and the difficulties and the challenges and many things we, don't even, we can't even grasp or understand that are going on around us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you will give them strength, Lord, to take on what is a spiritual battle, Lord, than to do that spiritual warfare in Parliament and the public places, um, within the background, Lord, that they will win many battles. But, Father, we just pray that you will strengthen Dave and, and Lord, that you will, your spirit will come upon him, Lord. And, and Lord, just in the challenges and the difficulties, you will give him rest, you will give him strength, and you will renew his spirit within him, Lord, that he will take on these challenges and speak for you and build your kingdom. So, Father, we ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.